hangman, slack your line, slack it just a while, for I think I see my papa coming, traveling many a mile, traveling many a mile. Hi everyone. This week, Mackenzie and I sat down with Katie, who runs the Shirley Jackson memes account on Instagram. We had a great discussion about Hangs a Man, as well as about the rest of Shirley's work. We talked a lot about Katie's scholarly interests, about academia, and finally about memes and internet culture. So if you're interested, check it out. As always, you can find us on the web at readingshirleyjackson.com. And if you'd like to reach out to us for suggestions for things you'd like to hear us discuss, you can email us at shirleyjacksonpodcast at gmail.com. That was how we were able to get in touch with Katie, and she ended up being a great guest. She offered lots of insight. So enjoy this bonus episode, and we will be back with our regularly scheduled content next week. And we are rolling. Hi, Mackenzie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Kelly? Uh, I'm okay. The folks at home can't see it, but we have a special guest. Katie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, my name is Katie. I am an MA student at West Virginia University studying literature. Um, And I also run the Instagram account, Shirley Jackson Memes, which is exactly how it sounds, memes about (laughs) Shirley Jackson. Um, I'm interested in Jackson, obviously, but I'm also interested in um, more broadly just sort of the horror genre, um, women in horror, sort of queer voices in horror, 20th century American literature and film studies. So those are kind of my academic interests. Oh, and also folklore. Cool. So Kelly, why don't you explain how did you find Katie's account and kind of what do you like about it? What drew you to it? I had uh, been aware of the account just seeing people post it on Twitter. Um, But actually, the way I found Katie uh, and asked her to do this interview, well, actually, Katie, would you like to tell it? Because you took the initiative. Yeah, I actually posted on my story a few months ago. I think it would be really fun to be a guest on a podcast because I like like to listen to podcasts. Uh, My favorite one is called Evolution of Horror. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it, but um, it's, I can't remember the name of the guy who runs it, but um, it's just this podcast that does, it talks about like each sort of like sort of subgenre of like horror film and they do a season on each one and they sort of talk about pretty much any horror movie you can think of they've done an episode on and I like to listen to it a lot while I like do chores or cook and stuff like that and I remember I was listening to an episode of that and I was like wow I wish there was like a podcast about Shirley Jackson that they could bring me on and I could talk about it because it would be fun to like be part of something like that so I posted it on my story and it ended up reaching Kelly. (laughs) Um, Do you know the Horror Homeroom podcast? No I don't. So um, one of the people who runs it, Dawn Keatley, she's at Lehigh. She is one of the preeminent Shirley scholars. Mm-hmm. And she does a lot with uh, folk horror. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah. So I haven't listened to many of their episodes, but I have listened to the one that they did on my beloved movie Freaks. So they're a great horror podcast as well. All right, everybody. So our podcast today is going to have three sections. We're going to start by asking Katie about Shirley Jackson as a figure um, we're going to ask her about Hanks Man, the novel in particular, which she's done a lot of work on. Um, we told Katie that we're about halfway through the novel. Um, we're not going to spoil anything, but she might talk about the text as a whole. And then we'll end with a discussion of like internet and meme culture and kind of the role of that within literary studies. So I'll turn it over to Kelly to get us started on Shirley Jackson. So 
I guess before we get into the um, specific questions that I have, I'm just always curious, uh, how did you first encounter Shirley and what was the first thing you read of hers? That's a really good question. Um, I think my first time encountering Shirley in any capacity was when I was younger. I can't remember exactly when. I'm thinking like middle school. In my sort of literature class, like anthology textbook that we had, we didn't actually read it in the class, but I remember uh, the short story One Ordinary Day with Peanuts was printed in it. And I I don't think I ever actually read it, but like I just remember flipping through it and like seeing it and just being vaguely aware of it. And then when I, the first time I actually read something of hers was when I was like 14 or 15. Um, I read The Haunting of Hill House. My dad is a big horror fan and we have like pretty similar tastes in books and movies and stuff in general. So he passed that along to me um, and I read it and I enjoyed it, but it kind of bounced off me a little bit. I think I was a little bit too young at that point to really like mm -hmm. get it. Yeah. But I remember I read it and I enjoyed it. And then a few years later, I asked my dad for recommendations again, and he gave me the sundial. And that one, I think, hit me in a way that Hill House didn't that first time. Um, and I had never read anything quite like it. I was just completely like, whoa, I didn't realize books could be like this. So I immediately, of course, needed more after that. So I moved on to We've Always Lived in the Castle. Mm -hmm. And that one was like possibly even more life-changing than mm -hmm. The Sundial. And then that, I think, kind of sealed the deal for me. And I have been uh, obsessed with Shirley Jackson ever since. So that leads us really well into the next question. What is the best Shirley <laughs> Jackson novel and why is it The Sundial? <laughs> that is a excellent question. Um, I love them all. I think it shifts, like, basically depending on whatever day you ask me, I'll have a different answer to this question. But I, I think most of the time I am kind of falling on the side that it's the sundial just because it's so underrated like it doesn't get talked about i think by jackson fans even and especially not by academia or culture as a whole so like under the radar but it's just a masterpiece it's hilarious yeah it's very unsettling and dark it's the like, characters are just so like you don't love them but you really just enjoy reading about them and like their hijinks and um, interactions with each other. It's just, it's a great time. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I think of all her novels, that's the one that's most like the lottery. Um, yeah. There's what I call the impulse to annihilation. My favorite line mm -hmm. in that book is, I think it's Aunt Fanny. She says, the experiment with humanity as it is at an end. Yeah. And Oriana says, splendid. <laughs> I was getting very tired of all of them. Absolutely love the sundial. Moving on from that is you know, it's one thing to just sort of talk about this stuff for fun. And then there's one to do it theoretically for money, which is what academia is. So yeah. <laughs> uh, when you decided what your field was going to be, what drew you to Shirley? What made you decide I'm going all in with this? Or have you made that decision yet? Because, you know, it fluctuates. Yeah. I think I've definitely kind of decided I'm going all in. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely have like a reputation like at least um among the people that like i work with like in my cohort and my professors that i'm like the shirley jackson person um and i think what kind of draws me to writing about her work is that i don't think it's really gotten the due that it deserves mm -hmm. as sort of part of the literary canon um especially kind of like those lesser known texts like 
Well, everyone knows the lottery. Like mm. you could come up to pretty much anyone on the street, at least I would hope, and they would at least recognize the title, the lottery, and sort of vaguely know what it's about. And Hill House, I think, has kind of some broader recognition as well, especially with uh, the show, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with what happens in the novel. But I'm <laughs> that right now. Um, but I think a lot of the lesser known texts like The Sundial and like Hangs a Man and um, lots of her short stories, um, even like The Bird's Nest, Road Through the Wall, even her unfinished um, Come Along With Me. Mm. Um, those are texts that like they just have not gotten the amount of, I think, critical attention that they deserve because they are all just incredible and they're so dense and so rich. And that to me is kind of what draws me to writing about them. Have you read all the novels? I have, yes. I've also never read the memoirs, have you? I have, yeah, mm -hmm. they're they're very fun. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say, um, at least from what I understand from reading like uh, Ruth Franklin's biography and mm -hmm. sort of all of the biographical information, I know they're not completely nonfiction. I think they're more kind oh, yeah. of like fictionalized stories of her life. I don't know that they paint like a completely accurate picture of what was happening, mm -hmm. but they're very fun, they're very funny. Um, and I think they, again, they don't get talked about a lot and they deserve to be talked about more because they are a delight. <laughs> Which, it, that's kind of almost more interesting, like how would you fictionalize your life? Like that feels yeah. so, like, it just feels so like narratively and theoretically rich to know that they're not true. Yeah. Think about why she does that. And like, we talk a lot about like myth-making on the podcast and yes. how like, she myth makes herself and so that is that's such a cool part of that now i want to read them yeah no they're awesome um yeah i haven't read the memoirs i've read um a lot of the fiction that is sort of hybrid um mm -hmm. i've talked before about how my introduction was the story charles um, oh, I love that one. Yeah, and I actually, my sim my story is similar to yours. I encountered it in my seventh grade textbook, um, and mm -hmm. I remembered the name Shirley Jackson. And then when I got to Hill House, I thought, well, Shirley Jackson's a pretty common name. This cannot be the same lady who wrote that cute short story, <laughs> but of course it is. So I still have um, some ways to go with my Shirley scholarship. Mm -hmm. It's uh a fun journey. <laughs> So um, that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, where would you recommend a beginner start? And when I say beginner, let's imagine that this person has already read the lottery. So in the outside of lottery world, and no shade to that story. I do like that story, but in a lot of ways, I think it's one of her least interesting. Um, I agree. Just because everything has already been said about it. Anyway, no shade to the lottery. I'm sure I'm going to get Absolutely. hate mail. Um, but where <laughs> would you recommend a newbie start? I would say that would depend on kind of who the person is, kind of what they want mm -hmm. out of a book. Um, but I would say if I'm thinking like just completely generally, I think maybe it's kind of a basic answer, but Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, yeah. I think are probably the best starting points just because, especially Hill House, um, I think it talks about a lot of kind of themes that feel very relevant still today. Mm -hmm. I think Eleanor as a character, at least, maybe at least for me maybe this isn't like a wide thing but i find her very relatable mm. and like she feels very much like then that like like a real sort of like whole person like you're reading this book and it's like like you can set like she had like you can sense that she's had like an existence before like mm. the story starts and like you can really um i think kind of identify with her and sort of feel her emotions very strongly and i think yeah. something very character driven like that 
is a good way to kind of get something into it. And then we've always lived in the castle as well with Mary Cat. She's just like so fun. I love I love her. And like she's just fun to read about. She has such a great voice. Stories like that where they're so strongly, I think, character driven can be a good entry point. It's interesting that you say start there because those are right at the end if you look at yeah, like the exactly. long history. Um and I, I I do think that's probably true that Shirley was getting better as she was getting older and then unfortunately she sort of cut down in her prime. Mackenzie, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience encountering Eleanor? Because as far as I know, aside from the lottery, that is where you started, right? Yeah. So to give you a little context, Katie, mm-hmm. I'm a Gothic scholar, but primarily nice. British. Yeah. Um, so I read Jackson and Kelly asked me to do this project. And so Hill House was the first time reading it. And it was like a real luxury to read it because we read it 15 pages at a time. And it's really been one of the more meaningful reading experiences I've had just because like, I think PhD is so much about quantity. Like like, I'm in my exams right now and I've, you know, I've had to read 90 books in the past six months and it's just like constant, constant, like getting to the finish line. Hill House was fun, not only because it was a masterpiece, but because it was a masterpiece we could really take our time on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I don't, I love Hangs the Man. Like, I think, again, I think it's, it's quite good, I, but I still don't know how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested to hear your perspective. Um, mm-hmm. but I want to do, we've always lived in the castle separately because my research is starting to veer towards like child psychopaths. And oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm really interested in as well. There's a child psychopath in the sundial too, though. Yes. <laughs> oh, perfect. I yeah. love it. I feel like the, um, the Harriet Stewart stuff and the sundial. Yeah. yeah and that dovetails also with Castle. Yeah. Like the sort of like Lizzie Borden mm-hmm. figure. <laughs> All right. So we've talked a bit on the podcast about Shirley's tendency to write at least what I think of as like mini versions of her longer stuff. For example, you've got Family Treasures, which is the story about the kleptomaniac, which appears again in Hangs a Man. And then you have yeah. A Visit slash The Lovely House, which is oh, kind of- my favorite story. I'm obsessed um, with it. So I guess then my first question would be, do you agree that you can see the seeds of Hill House in that? Oh, 1000%. Yeah. I think the main character, Margaret, is very much kind of a proto- Eleanor and that she has this weirdly deep connection with the house and the story kind of ends with her being like subsumed into the house Mm -hmm. and there's like this sort of almost like mother-daughter motif going on with her and the the older Margaret that she (laughs) encounters Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with that story I I actually just reread it the other day in honor of Shirley's birthday because it's one of my favorites yeah Um, yeah um can you tell the folks at home, maybe for those who haven't read it, uh, what the name of the family is in that story? Um, actually, I think there's like a weird um, thing with that. I think in different printings, it was different. Oh, I didn't know because that. Because I have it in, um, the, I have it collected in Come Along With Me. Okay. And I don't have in that version, it's Rhodes, but okay. there's like one like little error where they forgot to change it. And I think it was originally Montague. Yeah, it was Montague again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I have the collected Shirley Jackson and it's Montague in there. So yeah, we're going to talk more about Mrs. Montague later on. Um, So then 
but roads that's so funny with all the driving stuff right and the road through the wall um and, yeah in Shirley's letters, uh, she writes about how she was learning to drive in the process of writing Hangs a Man. So then the second part of that question is, one, do you, can you think of any other stories off the top of your head of hers that do that, where it's a sort of microcosm of something that later becomes a novel? Um, and what do you think it does for us as readers to have those prototypes? Yeah. I think one example that is um, immediately sort of coming to mind in relation to Hangs a Man is The Intoxicated. I don't know. About um, that I don't know if you're familiar with that one. It's incredible. It's in the lottery collection. Okay. And it's about it's a sort of a family holding like a cocktail party, and everybody is just kind of getting drunk and doing what people do at 1950s cocktail parties. Mm-hmm. One of the guests at the party sort of goes into the kitchen, and he meets the uh, daughter of the family, and oh, they're gosh. working on her homework. And for her homework, she's writing an essay. Um, it's been a little bit since I read it, so like all the details are kind of fuzzy but the essay is essentially about like the end of the world like what's going to happen when the world ends and they have this interesting little conversation about education and the future and the end of the world and I think it kind of prefigures the younger woman older man thing that we kind of see going on mm-hmm. in Hangs a Man with Natalie and uh, her assaulter and then also Langdon and I think the voice of the girl that we meet in that story does kind of feel like a precursor to Natalie. And it's it's a really, really great story. It's very unsettling and very just it sticks in my mind. Like I think I read it initially years ago. I can't remember when, but it's always just kind of like stuck to me. I haven't figured it out completely yet, I think, but it's a great one. So Katie, we talked a little bit about what draws you to Jackson. What draws you to Hangs a Man in particular? Because you've done a fair bit of research on Hangs a Man, right? Hangs a Man is actually very, very close to my heart. I don't think the listeners will be able to see this, but I have my Hanged Man tarot necklace on right now. Oh my gosh! Almost every day. Um, but I had to, of course, wear it for this. But the first time I read it actually was my senior year of high school. And I think it was another case, like I said, with Hill House before of a book that kind of like bounced off me the first time because I wasn't quite ready for it. I I reread it my sophomore year of undergrad. I was in kind of a stage in my life that was very similar to what Natalie is going through in Hangs a Man. Um, I was living in a just god-awful dorm with like barely any light or windows. And I was kind of starting to struggle a little bit more with some of my classes. I was taking like math and science classes to get through my gen eds and I was having a hard time with them. I was also just feeling like my mental health was not the greatest. All of my friends were in relationships except for me. So I felt very lonely. I was just having a hard time in general. So I picked up Hangs a Man again and I reread it. And like, it felt like I was reading my own thoughts on the page. I saw so much of like what was going on with me through Natalie. It just sort of made me feel like if Natalie's story can end this way, maybe my story can end this way too. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. How would you characterize like the writing of Hangs a Man? And maybe you can kind of put it into context with other Shirley writing, but what is Hangs a Man doing in particular? I think the thing that I like about it is that it's just very, um, it's very interior. I think a lot of Jackson's writing is. Um, That's why I think adaptations kind of struggled to kind of get her right because so much of like what happens in these books comes from what's going on in the protagonist's heads and they're sort of their particular ways of seeing the world. 
Um, and I think Natalie is kind of almost a precursor to Eleanor in that way, where like we're just all seeing everything through like her filter. Um, and I know y'all haven't gotten to Tony yet, so I won't get into Tony, but I think she's a reflection of that as well. And there are a lot of little um, like lines that are just very like snappy. I don't know if snappy is the right word. Yeah. Like, no, yeah, there's like a crispness. Yes. But like they, like just moments that like when you're reading it, you're like, wow, like you sort of draw back a little bit. Like she thinks about like her future. Like, is she going to be married with children? And to sort of chase that thought away, she, and this is a quote, imagines the sweet, sharp sensation of being burned alive. And it's mm. like, like it just gives you such a clear picture into like the very particular kind of mental state that she's in. Mm. And again, like yeah. just the sweet, sharp sensation, just like the, like the alliteration that's going on there. Yeah. And we talk a lot on the podcast, just by nature of having read Hill House for our first season. Mm -hmm. We often put Hang's Man like in the context of like a Shirley network. Like we've even done it in our conversation today, yeah. right? So Natalie is like Eleanor in these ways. Um, certain stories are precursor to Hang's Man and Hang's Man is a precursor to other stories. I guess like, what do we have to gain from seeing Shirley's work like that in like like a network or a web and what might we have to gain from seeing texts like individually as individual works with their own kind of merits I would say personally the approach that I kind of tend toward is the same as yours seeing everything in a network because I think there are like as we've been talking about so many moments where like there are these things that keep sort of cropping up the sort of structural stuff that's going on in um Hangs Man and several of her other novels with the heaven wall gate structure, I think that has been a really useful thing for me to think about. That's what I wrote my undergraduate thesis on. So that's something that like whenever I read one of her novels, I'm like hunting for. And Can I you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I actually discovered this in um, a lecture that Jackson would give alongside readings from the sundial, actually. Um, it's called About the End of the World. It's collected in the Let Me Tell You collection. Oh, nice. <laughs> Um, I just held up my copy. <laughs> what she says, essentially, when she's talking about the sundial is, prominent in every book I have ever written was a little symbolic set that I think of as a heaven wall gate arrangement. In every book I have ever written, and indeed, in the several outlines and rough sketches in my bottom desk drawer, I find a wall surrounding some forbidden lovely secret, and in this wall, a gate that cannot be passed. And then I'll skip it a little bit. Um, and she said, I found it odd in that in seven books, I had never succeeded in getting through the gate and inside the wall. Um, and then she goes on to say, I won't get into it too much because that's not the topic here, but the sundial she deliberately wrote as an inversion of that structure. She wanted to start inside the wall and sort of tell a story of characters trying to keep the world out of their wall. And I think Hangs a Man in particular is a representation of the structure in its kind of original non-altered form. Um, it's about Natalie and her sort of quest to sort of reach her heaven of becoming her essential self and come of age and grow up and sort of realize who she is. And I think it's an example of kind of the original sort of intent that she had with the structure. And then she plays around with it a little bit in the sundial and then in her last two novels. Um, especially in Hill House. I haven't actually written on Castle in that context yet. I'd like to in the future, but with Hill House, she kind of reverts again to the sort of original form of the structure where it's starting outside the wall and going in. But the fact that she's kind of played around with it and 
sort of picked it apart and figured out how it works by sort of deconstructing it in the sundial sort of opens her up to kind of, even when she's returning to the original structure in Hill House, make it a little bit more complex and interesting and subversive. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Kelly, what do you think as a as a Shirley expert? Is that something you've noticed? Kind of what interests you about that? I am not a Shirley expert. Um, I'm just somebody who has read a couple of things and likes to talk a lot. Yeah, I, I think that part of the reason why Hill House and Castle are the most famous of her novels is that they are the ones that do the thing. What I mean yeah. by that is they are the ones that are very clearly like spooky old house, which the sundial yeah. is too, but the sundial in a lot of ways I think is even more depressing than Hill House or is more oh, yeah. uh, existentially upsetting um, because the sundial is, spoiler alert, about the end of the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. I had never thought of taking the heaven wall gate and sort of troubling it because I've always taken Shirley at her word like this is when I went in and I had never thought about that before then. Um, and Hangs a Man is, is sort of a, a, a hybrid of that. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, about adaptation. Mm-hmm. I just finished an article for the Journal of Shirley Jackson Studies, which is about an adaptation of We Have Always Lived in the Castle. The reason I bring that up is because I forget which critic said it, but in one of the scathing reviews of the play, which to be honest, it deserved, somebody yeah. said that Shirley Jackson's work seems pretty unadaptable which I think has has kind of held true. Very much so. <laughs> We've done a lot of thinking about Hang's Man as autobiographical. It's really difficult not to, right? It's her campus yeah. novel. We know she lived on a campus for much of her life. A lot of the incidents kind of mirror direct things she wrote in her journals and letters. But we're also really cautious about it. Like we kind of want to be careful for you, what's at stake in reading Hangs a Man autobiographically? Are there reasons we should resist that? And are there like, like, what are the ethical implications for you about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I think autobiographical readings are valuable in some places, especially with Jackson, because like she has such like a large body of letters and journal entries and we kind of know a lot from herself in her own words, kind of about what she was thinking about certain things that happened to her and just her life in general. In this past spring semester, I did a paper um, for a folklore class on Jackson's demon lover stories. And I kind of read them alongside the original James Harris child ballad that um, she was taking them from. And I kind of looked at that in an autobiographical context to kind of pick out like okay, why is she interested in James Harris? Why did she use this ballad to make these points? And I think one thing that I discovered when I was doing that that I found very interesting is that Jackson's mother, Geraldine, is the one who taught her um, the child ballads when she was younger. Very cool. Um, And then also um, her husband, Stanley, was a folklore scholar, and he wrote a good bit about um, folklore in general and ballads to a certain extent as well. Um, And I think the points that she's making in those stories through the use of James Harris and like the folklore motifs plays into the critiques she's making against um, the institution of marriage and the institution of sort of patriarchy and this like idea where there's like a place for women, like only within the home. The, The fact that she's using these sort of ballads and this character that was introduced to her Um, by her mother, who was very obviously critical of her choices to sort of step outside of like what the expected role of a woman was. And then obviously, um, 
they connect to Stanley being just kind of a, I won't be too mean, but um, just not a great husband and not very capable of seeing Shirley's sort of intent in her own writing and her um, ability to, I think the fact that she's using this character feels particularly relevant to the critiques that she's making of them in particular. So I think can be very useful, but I think also we have to be careful when we're saying like, this character is this. Like, yeah, I think yeah. sort of assigning things like one-to-one to things that happened in her life or like people that were in her life can be a little bit questionable. Yeah. And I think to avoid that, but I am, I think, at least in the case of Jackson, am in favor of kind of taking a, taking a biographical approach because I think, like I said, we have a lot of information from her in her own words. I think um, maybe one of the reasons we tend to do that, especially since we're living in the Shirley Renaissance, is that that's yes. the way the Franklin biography is structured. You know, everything is by what she was writing at the time, and Franklin yes. tends to point out, you know, this happened to Shirley, and we see it happen here. Speaking of ballads, um, in the episode that I'm editing now, which people will have listened to by the time this comes out, um, we talk a little bit about how much Shirley loves to have nursery rhymes and fables and ballads in her stuff. And my very favorite thing that we found with season one was the um, murder ballad that Eleanor ah. sings towards the end about the Grattan murders. Yeah. Um, and it turned out, you probably know this, but it turned out that that was what Shirley would sing to her kids yes. to put them to sleep. Um, and we found a video of, I can't remember if it was Joanne or Sally singing it. So in the show notes for season one, we have um, one of the Hyman daughters singing the Grattan family murders. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, which I thought was really cool. And I feel like I'm like I'm at the point as a scholar where I'm trying to resist the shit that we were told was rules, you know, like. You can't treat characters like real people. You can't read autobiographically. And I think like those, that's fine. Like those are interesting. I'm really interested in resisting those as well. So like, yes. what if we thought about Natalie as a real person? Like what, like, why is that the kind of ultimate faux pas in literary studies? Like, yeah. again, like you're saying, like if we have something to gain from the points that Shirley was making in the context of her own life, why is that kind of seen as like rudimentary scholarship? I thought that was a really good way of saying it, that like there actually is something to gain theoretically as mm -hmm. well. It's just, I think it's interesting, right? To read it. Yeah, and be, exactly. Yeah, like I think the Paula Jean Weldon is a perfect example of that where people mm -hmm. are like, well, it wasn't really about that. And it's not, but yeah. she was also really interested in that case. And so like, how can we put those things next to each other without saying this is a Paula Jean Weldon story? Yeah, I think actually you bringing up the Paula Jean Weldon, that reminded me of, the film Shirley with Elizabeth Moss that came out oh, yeah. a few years ago. Ooh. And I think there have been critiques of that one because it's not like a straight biopic. It does very much play fast and loose with the actual facts of her life. But I actually really enjoy it um, knowing that. Sorry. And I think <laughs> I was going to fight you. I unmuted oh, myself like... to boo. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh. Continue. No, no, I know. Go ahead. You know, I get why people don't like it. And I absolutely understand that critique. I read it more as like, if Shirley sat down and she wrote a story about a woman named Shirley who was married to a professor named Stanley in Bennington, not her, some other woman who shared like the name and like the facts of her life, I think this is kind of what it would be like. I don't think it's exactly what it would be like, but um, I think also like in like the myth-making context that y'all were bringing up earlier about like yeah. sort of like what do we sort of think about Jackson, like as a sort of cultural character, 
And I think it's just, it's well made. I think the performances are really good. And I really like the music actually. And I think the score is pretty. It's a cool movie. And I think it does kind of a good job of sort of playing around with the sort of biographical reading. So because I have come out so strongly as anti that movie, um, (laughs) I, that really my problem with it is that it, goes for broke with the, well, Shirley was just unhappy because she was gay thing. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, Which we know Shirley had a really fraught relationship with lesbianism. Um, She wrote a lot of not cool things um, about queer people. And I I just, I resent any reading that boils it down to just, this explains everything. Yeah, no, that's Um, a completely understandable criticism. Yeah, and I think it's just, especially with somebody like Shirley, who uh, maybe is still waiting for, their day in the sun as much as she could have had it. Um, it's irresponsible to just boil it down to that. Um, yeah, that's I get that for sure. Yeah. But I think that's a cool reading of it. I, I really like what you said about like, if Shirley were to write the facts of her life. Like, I think that's such a cool way to put it. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Because I am, I think also a little bit frustrated by, I think one critique that I've seen of it is that like when she was writing Hangs a Man, like she had children already. Like yeah. she was a mother and that was a very important part of her life, which I don't think should be erased at all. Mm. Um, especially because like the sort of cultural tendency to sort of say like, oh, once a woman's a mother, she's done. And like mm. when she has children, like they take over her entire life. Yeah. And like to sort of prove that like women can do things when they're mothers besides being mothers. Yeah. Um, and I think that is an issue with it. But I think for me, at least, as long as I think of it, like, this is completely fictional. This is not about the real Shirley Jackson. I think I can appreciate it more as a film and for what it's doing. I do think the marketing was a little off because I don't think it made it clear enough that it was fiction. Mm. But yeah, it really, really interesting movie. I actually need to watch it again. I haven't seen it in years. <laughs> I will say, and again, I may have to edit this out because I may get flamed for it. <laughs> uh, the one thing I liked about that movie is it was the first time it was the first time I was ever made to understand how Stanley was attractive. Because um, <laughs> I just, the pictures of him that I'd seen, the stories yeah. that I had read, I just, not at all. Um, but who I think it's Michael Fassbender Brutal. in that movie. Um, no, not Michael Fassbender. I don't remember. But whoever played Stanley in the Sherlock movie. I'll look him movie. up right now. Because um, it's going to be me if I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny, Kelly. <laughs> no, I, can, I can see it. I can see it. Yeah. I think the reason probably why the kids are left out of that movie is because they're all still alive. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I would want to be in a movie like that about my parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, also, it's Michael Stuhlbarg who played him. Yeah. So mixed feelings about that. Okay. So our last question for you, um, Katie, is we've talked about so many short stories that kind of relate in some way to Hangs a Man. That's why it was so exciting for you to bring up The Intoxicated, because there are even ones we still haven't found yet. Do you have hidden gem recommendations for short stories? Yeah. One of my favorites is one that we talked about earlier, Visit. That one really, I think, sticks out to me because it almost feels like it's taking place in like a secondary fantasy world. Um, Like the house that it takes place in is very much kind of cut off from the rest of society. And once the main character, Margaret, enters it, there's kind of this suspicion that she's never going to leave. Um, And just the prose has this kind of general like, sort of dreamy, almost like surreal fairy tale kind of vibe to it. Um, Like the descriptions of the house seem like beautiful, like fantasy castle. Actually, I just, this just popped into my head, but I feel like it has always reminded me of, you know, like the fairy tale, the 12 dancing princesses, where like the princesses are like going through like into like their magical world and like 
this room is all filled with gold and this room is all filled with silver. And that's what happens in a visit. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Um, so I think that, it, I think it's the closest that Shirley gets to kind of working in like a pure fantasy genre. Um, and I really, I really enjoy that from her. So that's one of my favorites. And then also I really enjoy um, The Beautiful Stranger, which is also collected in Come Along With Me. I think that is out of like all the short story collections. I think for me, that one is like the highest ratio of just like absolute bangers. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wrote about it as well, along with the visit in my James, my James Harris paper that I wrote earlier this year. Um, and it's about a woman who, whose husband comes back from a business trip and she realizes that it's not her husband and it's actually a stranger. And instead of being scared or upset, she's happy about it. <laughs> yeah. She's like, this is great. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just looking through my collection of the collected stories. Um, Mackenzie, and again, um, this episode was not released yet, but uh, we were talking about Island. Oh, last I like time. that one. Yeah, I don't. Oh, yeah. I've never read Island, but my thing is medical humanities, so now I have to read it. Ooh, yeah. Um, but I took a class during the pandemic, actually, with Ruth Franklin. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, and we did the sundial, and there was this person in the class who said, "I didn't like it. Nothing happened, and the characters were shallow," which is essentially the sundial. But um, the reason <laughs> I bring that up is because it was really interesting to see the stories that she picked, sort of emblematic. One was a visit. One was Louisa, please come home. Oh, that's a great yeah, one. Yeah, that's one of the greatest hits. Yeah. Um, we did the Summer People, which... Classic. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the Summer People. Um, yeah. <laughs> we did one that I had never heard of, The Bus. Do you know that one? Oh, I love The Bus. Yeah. That one's The Bus. Yeah. Tell us about The Bus. It's about an old woman who is taking a bus and she falls asleep on the bus. Um, and then when she wakes up, she gets sort of ushered off the bus to this little hotel um that she wasn't like sort of fully expecting to go to um and there's like just sort of weird sinister people in this hotel Mm -hmm. and she kind of has like a fantasy about like returning to her childhood and like it's very just kind of like unsettling weird sort of nightmarish vibes and then she wakes up from like this nightmare that she's had and then she's being ushered off the bus again into the same hotel and it almost seems like it's in this like never ending, like terrifying nightmare time loop of the same situation over and over again. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. I will say the reason that that story gets to me so much is because of the SpongeBob rock bottom episode. <laughs> which you <laughs> talked about on the podcast. Yeah. So the, true. <laughs> the, the level to which that fucked me up. I'm never going to recover. I also really like, um, I know you said you've, you'd been writing about Jackson and race recently, but I really yeah, enjoy Flower, Flower Garden, Garden yeah. as well. That one is one that I don't think gets talked about enough and is very like, I think it kind of might be controversial to say, but I think it does kind of some of the same things that the lottery does mm-hmm. in a more interesting, unexpected way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for that article, I wanted to make sure that there was nothing I was missing. So I basically combed as much Shirley stuff as I could find. And there are yeah. two stories in the entire body of work where somebody is explicitly black. One is yeah. Flower Garden. Um, and then the other one is a sort of life sketch, not really though, called After You, My Dear Alphonse. Yes, yeah. that um, one's really interesting as well. Um, we'll turn over to a discussion of like meme culture, which is obviously like a big part of what Katie does, at least in your free time on Instagram. And we thought we'd start by sharing our fave memes from your account. <laughs> 
So the first one is the, it's a tweet, it's hangs a man, or sorry, no, the tweet is, there's a forest in Vermont that feels nihilistic, and then the retweet is hangs a man 1948, <laughs> so that's very funny, and then I love the Bernie, Eleanor, Theodore, yeah. I am once again asking to come live in your house. <laughs> I'm, I remember both of those, I'm very proud of both of those. <laughs> the hangs a man one, I actually, I can't even remember like what account that was, but I followed it, I don't know if it's still active. But like that just came up like on like my Twitter feed and I was like, that sounds like Hangsman. So I just quote tweeted it and then I posted it to my Instagram page. <laughs> like honestly, that's how I come up with things. Like I just see things like out in the wild that make me think of Shirley Jackson and then I bring them to my page. <laughs> Were you surprised it. by how your account took off? I was. Yeah, I honestly, I made it, I think it was like four years ago now. Yeah, because it was in 2019. And I made it because I had seen like other sort of literary meme Instagram mm -hmm. accounts, but they were all very much like targeted and sort of based on like sort of high school mm. um, sort of classic literature that like everyone has read, like Great Gatsby, Shakespeare, mm. um, stuff like that. And I would see things and I would think like, why don't they make stuff about Shirley Jackson? Because like her work is hilarious. And I think it has like lots of potential, even in the less funny parts to like make jokes about it. Yeah. And I was just surprised that nobody had ever done it before. So I just started doing it myself. And it took a little bit to kind of get to the point that it's at now. Um, I think I've definitely kind of been steadily building up like a community over the past four years. And I I'm very happy with where it's at now. That's so like, cool. Just people that are there. It's, it's really cool to have people to like talk about Jackson with because I think a lot of the time, like even in academia, even in like, sort of communities of people who like read and like books most people haven't really like done like a deep dive into Jackson like they probably know the lottery or like Hill House or Castle maybe but like people don't know what you're talking about when you talk about Hangs a Man a lot of the time yeah uh, and it's cool to find people that do um I have two favorite memes um one is uh it's a picture of Mel and Theo from The Haunting um and it says happy pride month to these two and their bullshit and then <laughs> The other favorite meme is for a very, very specific reason that nobody's going to care about but me. Um, it's not a meme template that I'm super familiar with, but I'm going to hold it up. So oh, yeah. um, it's the two cars and so it's Mrs. Montague and she's pointing to the scientific method. She says, the scientific method, this is brilliant. And then she points to Planchette and says, but I like this. Um, I love this for two reasons. One is um, if you listen to our first season, one of the hills I'm willing to die on is that Mrs. Montague is awesome. Um, I am 100% with you there. I think I Mrs. Her. Montague gets responses from the house that nobody else can get. But the other reason why I think that this is a wonderful meme is because the building that's in the background is uh, Livadia Palace in the Crimea, which was the favorite home of the last imperial family of Russia, uh, which was, which is my other major love aside from Shirley. Um, so a very nerdy niche reason. Um, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> Yeah. I had no idea about the house. Um, I just saw somebody else post it in that format and I put my own spin on it. Yeah. Um, but that is a deep cut. That is from several years ago. So I am impressed that you dug that one up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've talked about Hangs a Man. We've talked about Shirley in general. We've talked about your career as a memer. And so I'll ask the sort of nerdy question, which is, what do you see as the role of the internet in literary studies? Since this is all something that we are now having to deal with. And I don't just mean in terms of like yeah. chat GPT. 
I think for me and like the way that I personally use it and I think like the way that I kind of find utility in the internet is that it allows you to kind of connect with people um, in ways that you can't without it. You can kind of reach out and like find people who have like the same kind of like niche interests as you do. I mean, that's how I found this podcast to get on it. So that was really cool. Um, and I think it kind of allows you to kind of communicate with people in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to. Mm -hmm. This is just kind of, this is going to sound like a humble brag. I promise it's not. <laughs> but brag. Carmen Maria Machado actually follows my account. Really? And she, yeah. And she shares my posts sometimes. Ruth Franklin does as well. Like writers that I really admire uh -huh. follow me. And I like never in a million years did I think I would be like sending Instagram DMs to Carmen Maria Machado, but so I can't awesome. like connect with people that they would not have otherwise met. Like whether it's for reasons that they're like across like a big geographic distance, mm -hmm. you just wouldn't have ordinarily crossed paths because like maybe some one person in academia, one person's not that like is interested in going into academia or is not interested in it at all. Um, but we all have kind of like common interests. So I think the internet is a really great tool too. Might sound a little cliche, but just to bring people together. Um, the entire reason why I started this podcast is because I am bad at arguments. Um, I am not, I am not good at finding a text and saying, I am going to prove to you that this is true. I am mm -hmm. much more just sort of wander around and point out things that I think are cool. And, yeah. um, that was what gave me the idea to do the podcast. But because when, before you hopped on the call, me and Mackenzie were talking a lot about, you know, the who's in and who's out of academia. Something that anybody who's in the game will tell you is that this is not a fair field. And what I mean by that is it is not economically viable. And it's also yeah. because it's not economically viable, it disadvantages people who don't have the money. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I was wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about your demographic and, you know, how many people are in academia, if you know those numbers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I don't have like exact stats mm -hmm. on that. Um, I know occasionally like I will, I think one thing that I really enjoy about having, like, it's not like a gigantic platform, but having somewhat of a larger platform is that if I have questions about stuff, actually a few weeks ago, um, one of my final papers that I wrote this semester was on, um, Jordan Peele's movie, Nope, um, one of my very favorite movies. Um, and I was looking for sources that I could use for that paper. Um, so I just put like a message out on my story, like, hey, does anyone have suggestions for um, sources about this topic? And I got a bunch of responses. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I know. Like, it's a great like little kind of extra like toolbox that I have when I'm researching um, and looking for sources on stuff. And other times, like I, this semester, I'm working on um, PhD applications. Like I, I've asked questions about like, hey, is this, I actually asked like, should I put this meme account in my CV? Um, what did people tell you? Um, I got mixed responses. I, I think most people, and that one specifically I asked for like people in academia because like yeah. people who have kind of like an informed perspective on this instead of people who are just like along for the ride. But I think what people said generally is that it depends on the school that you're applying to. Um, and if they are kind of a little bit more like formal seeming um, and a little bit more traditional, I guess, mm -hmm. probably not a good idea to mention it. But if they're more interested in like innovation and doing new things and sort of embracing technology and the internet, it's worth doing. And 
I did do it for a few of them. We'll see if I get into those schools that I mentioned this account to. I think at least from that and like from the questions I've specifically asked, like this is specifically for people in academia. Mm -hmm. um, I would say there's a significant minority mm -hmm. of people in academia that follow me, mm -hmm. but I think it is a minority. I think there's a lot more people who are just like readers and fans of Jackson in a sort of non-academic capacity. And I think, like I said before, something that's cool about it is that it kind of brings these two kind of audiences together because I kind of started the account initially as something, as just like something fun, you know, like mm -hmm. as a reader and a fan. But as I have kind of progressed through academia and started grad school, um, I have been kind of taking advantage of, it, advantage of it more as a tool for helping me get through my own research. I love that. I in the future, I definitely am interested at some point in writing something about like meme accounts <laughs> and like their kind of connection to like literary studies and the internet. I don't know like what my argument would be or like where I want to take it, but it's something that interests me and I don't think it's something that has been written about yet to my knowledge. Maybe it has, I haven't really looked into it, but I think it would be fun to write about. <laughs> I think the meme is like one of the greatest linguistic evolution <laughs> creations of the 21st century. Like, I just think it's really amazing, like when you actually think about it. And so I think I'd be really interested in that article of like, what does a meme do and what does it do when we put it in conversation mm -hmm. with narrative? Like, it's just yeah. to me. Yeah, no, it's interesting because like I said before, there's a lot of sort of literature themed meme accounts out there. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of them, and especially the bigger ones, they don't really make a lot of original content. They just like take screenshots of like tweets and Tumblr mm -hmm. posts that are years old. Like as somebody who's kind of like creating my own original content for the most part, it's interesting to kind of see how that compares to the other accounts that are just kind of, I guess, kind of aiming for like a wider audience and sort of posting like more different kinds of things that I have like a very specific like niche. And yeah. I think I have reached the people that I'm trying to reach, which is awesome. Yeah. I think also sort of audience is a really interesting to think of thing to think about with like the internet and sort of who are you trying to reach? Who do you reach even without trying to? Yeah. The motivation that you have to keep posting. Yeah, which honestly for me has been a wonderful thing about the podcast because in academia, you're essentially talking to nobody. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're talking to the three other people who do what you do who may someday read this article. Um, mm -hmm. So Mackenzie, do you have any other questions? I am set. This was so wonderful. Okay. Kelly, do you I have any yes. final follow-ups? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, I have two <laughs> questions. Um, one, you mentioned Carmen Maria Machado earlier. Um, yes. Something that Mackenzie and I were discussing before you hopped on is another thing which I feel very strongly about because I have many strong opinions. Um, <laughs> but I feel like Shirley is somebody who gets talked a lot about in terms of uh, heirs and heiresses. This is the next Shirley Jackson, which of course there can never yeah. be. But um, is there anybody or any text maybe that you would tap for that position? That is a really tough one. Um, I think... I don't think you can say like there is an ex Shirley Jackson because there's only ever going to be one of her. Mm -hmm. There's only ever one of anyone. Yeah. Um, but I think writers that are currently working that I kind of get sort of Shirley vibes from mm -hmm. to a certain extent. I think Carmen Maria Machado is definitely there. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's definitely, especially in, um, she did a short story actually in the, uh, the When Things Get Dark collection that came out a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of is a take on Hill House and the Cup of Stars line that I thought was really great. Yeah. 
I think also another writer that actually I have the book right here. Let me grab it. Another writer that is very kind of explicitly in conversation with Jackson, even though she's doing very different things, is um, Alison Rumfitt's book, Tell Me I'm Worthless. Oh, I'm not, I don't know I've if not heard of her. It's really good. Um, it's not like, like sort of tonally like Jackson at all, mm-hmm. um, but it's about like a haunted house. Um, and it kind of talks about sort of fascism and transphobia wow. in like the, the British context. Okay, cool. Um, like this metaphor of a haunted house. It, it's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. And there are some parts where she kind of is taking off on the opening paragraph of Hill House with the no live creature should, can exist same land or conditions of absolute reality that she kind of plays around with, which is cool. She also follows my account, which is really awesome. <laughs> um, have you read the uh, Elizabeth Hand? No, I haven't. I'm actually really scared too. Because <laughs> I am very emotionally attached to Hill House and Eleanor. That's why I have such like burning hatred for the Flanagan TV show. So me too. Um, <laughs> so I, I've talked about this before. Full disclosure, I've not watched it. Um, Neither have I. <laughs> but I think a lot of my rage towards that TV show comes from having taught Hill House so many times and having mm-hmm. to contend with the people who were like Eleanor's brother, Luke. Yeah, that, that's my rage towards the um, Netflix. And my final question, which Mackenzie, I would like you to answer too. You are in a life and death situation. Uh, you have one Shirley Jackson character who you can choose Ooh. to assist you. Who are you choosing? Ooh, I'm going to have to think about that. That is rough. Because I think I'm thinking about like my favorite characters. Mm. And I don't know if they're the ones that I would want with me in a life or death situation. <laughs> Eleanor would be I need useless. <laughs> I need a more specific life or death. Like, what okay, is the life say, or death? Let's yeah. uh, say burning building. Okay. Hmm. Elizabeth Langdon. <laughs> I mean, she has a track record of putting out fires. <laughs> very true. Very true. I was going to say Mary Cat because she probably started the fire. She can help mm-hmm. me get out of there because well, she knows she, where to go. No, well, actually, canonically, <laughs> she did start the fire. Yeah, um, which is an, actually another thing that I think that the movie does too heavy-handedly. It shows her, yeah. you know, officially. Um, yeah. So I can tell you my answer: Fancy yeah. Halloran. Oh, that's a good one. That's the Love psychotic her. kid in the sundial. An icon. Yeah, she's she's terrible, and she probably kills her grandmother. But um, yeah, I have my answer, and it's a hot take. Okay, Ooh. I don't remember his name, Mrs. Montague's lover Arthur, Arthur. <laughs> and here's and here's why he's gonna here's shoot why. the fire with his gun he does yes. sport. he does sport yes he obviously this is bad but he views women as weaker mm-hmm. so he so would save me up yeah but also he's very easy to manipulate so I would just be able to boss him around and be like get me out of here and mm-hmm. he would do it so yeah. that is very well thought out see Thank I you. have no faith in my own ability to escape a burning building so, like, I would want somebody who would, like, definitely know what to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm going fancy. What about you, Katie? I am still processing that. You know what? I think I'm going to go – have either of y'all read The Bird's Nest? Yes. Elizabeth, Beth, yeah. Betsy, and Bess, they all got together and made a bird's yep. nest. Yep. I'm actually in the middle of rereading it right now. I had to set it aside because um, I had too much other stuff to do. But now that I'm done for the semester, I'm going to dive back into it. And I'm going to go with Aunt Morgan because she mm-hmm. knows what she is doing. She is a badass. She's iconic. I love her. Yeah, she definitely is in the Verna, Mrs. Montague, almost like Aunt Fanny archetype. Yeah. Sort of like the older woman who is a little eccentric, but Mm -hmm. still lovable. (laughs) Yeah. So 
where can people go on the World Wide Web uh, if they'd like to find out more about you and your work? Um, well, I would say the best place to follow me is my Instagram, Shirley Jackson Memes. I don't really have any other like public social media accounts. Mm -hmm. I prefer to kind of keep my personal life private. But um, if you want to see me talk about Shirley and post silly memes and post pictures of my cat sometimes, um, you can find me on Instagram at Shirley Jackson Memes. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been a pleasure talking to yes, you. So thank you for you having me. This yes. is a blast. Yes, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Reading Shirley Jackson, the podcast. You can find us on the web at readingshirleyjackson.com, where you can get access to show notes and transcripts from both season one and season two, as well as contact us with any questions, comments, or suggestions for what you'd like to hear on the podcast. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, the best way to do that is to tell a friend, or even better, leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, since that really helps the algorithm notice us and recommend us to more people. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. And I can't. Oh, remember. interesting. Yeah, um, it's a terrible <laughs> adaptation. Um, yes, I hate it. Well, it's so it's not the movie; it's um, the play that was on Broadway in the seventies. Oh, do you know oh, about this? Yeah. Are you familiar with that? Familiar. I've heard of it, but I've never seen it or read the script or anything. Okay, so basically um, the gist of it is that instead of being a black cat, Jonas is a little black child. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. And there's no reason why he needs to be. Um, but yeah, so I, I use that as my way in to talk about race and Shirley. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because I forget which critic said it, but um, in one of the scathing reviews of the play, which to be honest, it deserved, um, somebody yeah. said that Shirley Jackson's work seems pretty unadaptable, um, yeah. which I think has, has kind of held true. Very much so. <laughs> That is bizarre. I'm going to have to read more about that play. I will definitely be reading your article when it comes out because oh. that is just like, why would they do that? <laughs> so I don't want to, you know, talk too much about it, but the thing that yeah. interested me most in that um, article that I wrote um, is I was looking